And good evening, everyone. Good evening. <clears throat> Thank you very much for coming. Welcome to the Seymour Centre, the University of Sydney's Performing Arts Centre. I'm Tim Jones, Artistic Director and General Manager. Welcome also to the Reginald Theatre, for those of you who haven't been here before. Currently showcasing Educating Rita behind these, behind these blacks, um, which is part of our education program for HSC syllabus, uh, for our HSC students, because the, the play is on the syllabus, which is why we're here with this fantastic set behind us. Welcome to I'm Not Creative, But, um, presented by the Seymour Centre and Sydney Ideas. Tonight marks the beginning of Seymour's week-long program as part of Vivid Sydney. As you probably know, Vivid is centred on lights, ideas and music. As part of the university, we have naturally focused our program to showcase the best ideas from the brightest students and researchers in light and technology from the University of Sydney. As you came into the building, you probably saw in the courtyard the lighting installations and the building lit in new ways by the postgraduate students of Illumination Design at the Faculty of Architecture, Design and Planning. These students have been led by Wendy Davis, who is here with us tonight, and you will hear from her very soon. In our main foyer upstairs, you can interact with a tabletop developed by the Computer Human Adapted Interaction Research Group at the university. Tabletops uh, work as giant tablet screens which people can explore, uh, combinations of images, documents, videos and interactive maps which can be thrown up from the tablet, the big table, up onto the wall. It's, it's fantastic. This research group has also devel developed the interactive media wall which some of you may have seen also in our courtyard uh, uh, which are, uh, shows an array of information that you can leaf through with the movements of your hands. So I urge you, after we finish tonight, to go upstairs to our top foyer and engage with the tabletop and to also uh, to go into the courtyard to see the lights and the media wall following with, uh, following with um, the end of tonight. The research group that developed both of these innovative pieces of technology is led by uh, Professor Judy Kay, who is also with us tonight. <coughs> our music program, as part of Vivid, also has strong links to the university, curated by a conservatorium graduate, Andrew Bat Rawdon who has brought together an all-day program on Saturday featuring, featuring exploratory music from artists including The Collarbones, The Noise, The Kecko Fornarelli Trio and Alicia Crossley. This Friday night is a big night uh, featuring a star of the new music scene, Anthony Pateras, who is coming here, he's an Australian, but he's coming, lives now in Belgium and he's coming here for the, for the night. And he's composed for the ACO and for Mike Patton's Mondo Carne, which was part of the 2012 Sydney Festival. So please come along on Friday night or Saturday if you can. We sincerely thank the Australia Council for the Arts for assisting us to mount this music program and the Vivid team for their support and enthusiasm for expanding the program to the inner west and we hope that this can continue and grow into the future. Our ideas program begins tonight and also features What's Hot, a discussion on Friday night about the latest trends in music featuring Marcus Whale of The Collarbones and Julian Day, presenter on ABC Classics FM. In a moment, I will introduce you to all five of uh, these terrific people, five of Sydney University's leading academics who will discuss what role, if any, creativity plays in their work. By way of introduction, I have been wondering when I approached this if I might have been the wrong person to lead this session. Perhaps I should have been at the I'm not an academic but session or I'm not a bureaucrat but discussion. My first career impulses were, you could say, creative. Performing, making things up out of nothing, creating was what I wanted to pursue. 
unquestioningly. So I pursued drama. I went to NIDA and acted quite a bit before the sporadic employment cycle and repetitive television scripts ultimately made me feel that my brain was not continuing to be tested. It felt underused. So for me, I pursued arts administration and theatre directing uh, and was lucky enough to discover new opportunities that led to my current role. However, for me, even when planning a budget, filling out a funding application, or shaping a work health and safety uh, plan, the skills of collaboration, investigating new ways to solve problems, listening to and trusting instinct, testing all possibilities before feeling out the right one, are all creative practices that I developed at drama school and I think play an important role in my current administrative processes. Left and right brain working together, perhaps. There's a lot of talk about creativity at the moment. In fact, it's hot. Not only is creativity one of the key underlying pillars of Vivid, which we know, but the latest City of Sydney cultural policy is titled Creative City, which, up front, defines culture as the production, distribution and participation in creativity by its community of residents, workers and visitors, and the reflection and expression of its customs, traditions, heritage and social character. In March this year, the first national cultural policy to be released since Keating's 1994 Creative Nation talks of creative expression as one of the three key, uh, key themes underlying the policy. One of the five main goals the policy outlines is to ensure Australian creativity thrives in the digitally enabled 21st century by supporting innovation, the development of new creative content, knowledge and creative industries. So is creative now, sorry, is, so is creativity now where it's at, no matter what you do? And if it is where it's at, does our current work culture in universities and elsewhere really provide an opportunity for creative thinking to thrive? And so, to discuss this, would you please welcome Professorial Research Fellow in the Department of History, Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, plus the director of the very new Sydney Environment Institu Institute. Would you please make welcome Ian McCalman. <laughs> the uh, Professor of Computer Science from the Faculty of Engineering and IT and leader of the Computer Human Adapted Interaction Research, Pro Research Group, as mentioned, Judy Kay. Lecturer in Design Computing and member of the Design Lab within the Faculty of Architecture, Design and Planning, please welcome Martin Tomic. <laughs> Associate Professor and director, director of the Illumination Design Program in the Faculty of Architecture, Design and Planning, Wendy Davis. <laughs> and Professor of Classical Philosophy within the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, Rick Benitez. Sorry, Rick. Just to let you know before we begin that we are being filmed for the uh, university website, so that's happening up the back. Our speakers will speak for around about five to seven minutes and then we'll open it out for discussions between the group and of course uh, your questions as well. So to begin, I'm not creative, but would you please welcome Ian McCalman. Thanks Tim, thanks folks for coming. I feel as though the title should be, I'm not creative, no buts. Um, 
in 2001, after 30 years as an orthodox academic, two things happened to transform my attitudes to history writing and teaching. First, I was persuaded to join a BBC reenactment of Captain Cook's voyage through the Barrier Reef to Indonesia. Our hairy-chested director called it extreme history because we were to simulate the lives of 18th century sailors. Secretly, though, he wanted to make one of those TV reality shows where volunteers are subjected to hideous challenges for the entertainment of viewers. We climbed swaying masts without safety harnesses to set thrashing sails in the dark. We chewed hardtack biscuits that broke our teeth. We were made to sleep in wet clothes so that one historian got double pneumonia and had to be rushed to hospital by helicopter. <laughs> I hated that voyage, but it showed me that there'd been a major shift in historical sensibilities. We professional historians had been trained to study why and how things happened in the past. But TV history wants us to explore a different question. It asks, what did it feel like to be a sailor smashing into a coral reef two centuries ago? Did people in the past feel emotions in the same way that we feel them now? It's a challenging question, and to explore it properly, I've come to think that we must learn from the creative techniques of novelists, artists, filmmakers, and philosophers if we are to get there. Well, a few weeks after this voyage, I bumped into a literary agent who asked me bluntly if I'd like to join her popular stable instead of writing academic books that nobody reads. <laughs> Miffed at such a cruel assessment, I stalled for a while before deciding to give it a go. I knew, of course, that my university would not approve. Australian governments have for several decades ensured that university historians are rewarded only for writing specialist academic works published by university presses. There are no Guernseys for writing popular history. Nevertheless, 12 months on, I'd written what, what is known as the, in the business as a trade book. That is a book aimed at general readers that people pay for. It was about a slum, true-life Sicilian slum boy who called himself Count Cagliostro and swindled Casanova, Catherine the Great, and Marie Antoinette, among others. He was also one of the triggers of the French Revolution. Well, the results of this literary experiment of mine were mixed, but life-changing for me. I've never enjoyed writing a book so much, because I was telling a historical story rather than attempting a social science analysis. To the horror of the ANU, where I then worked, my agent sold the book to the largest publisher in the world, and it was translated into 15 languages. Later, I sold movie rights to Miramax Films and musical rights to Gary Cooper's daughter, Janice. But Hollywood and Broadway, as you can guess, can be fierce and fickle places. Miramax decided not to do the film because the director, Anthony Minghella, died inconveniently. And the musical didn't go ahead because, to be frank, my libretto was truly appalling. <laughs> so was my American book tour. Its lowest point came when I was interviewed on TV 
in tandem with an 11-year-old girl who was supposed to recite the Gettysburg Address from memory. Sadly, she succumbed to nerves and had to be taken off sobbing. I longed to join her. <laughs> Since Cagliostro, though, I've been hooked by the challenge of trying to write scholarly books uh, for general audiences and also the challenge of trying to translate my histories into other kinds of media forms. My last book, Darwin's Armada, found the perfect trade publisher in Penguin, Australia, and it inspired a museum exhibition, an educational website, and an international TV series called Darwin's Brave New World, some of you may have seen. Out of this last two came a partnership with a documentary filmmaker, producer, which we forged in an Erskineville wine bar. Creativity knows no boundaries. And that's where I am now. I finished a book, just finished a book called The Reef, A Passionate History, The Great Barrier Reef from Captain Cook to Climate Change. Penguin will publish it here in November and an American press early next year. I may not be creative, but I've learned to work with creatives. With filmmaker Mike Blewett and with two brilliant web designers, Noah Peer and Karen Moran, who run the local digital company Spring in Alaska, and I know that Noah's here tonight. Together we've used ideas from my book to make three short documentary films, a fantastic website, and a short promo for a proposed TV series. And just before finishing, showing you this three-minute promo, I'd like to make a few points about creativity. First, I'm not saying that everybody in universities should produce popular rather than specialist works. That would be ridiculous. Both forms can be creative. It's a matter of horses for courses. Secondly, I believe too, very seriously, that Australian governments will soon introduce a new measure to assess university research for public impact. If so, both popular and specialist work will be valued by universities for the first time. Finally, I hope too that universities will start to give proper recognition to forms of research other than print. And this is particularly in my own school rather than places like architecture where they've long done this. We're living, as we all know, in a communication revolution that's generating wholly new web-based and digital forms. Students communicate creatively with each other with tweets, blogs, websites, electronic books and games and mobile apps. We too have to learn to adapt to these. They're not passing fads, they're our future. And here's the promo, folks. A reef is not just a place. Not just a collection of corals, not just a scientific phenomenon. It is a subjective experience. Something that comes out of an engagement between the human and the place. Something that's part of the mind and the heart as much as it is the physical object.
as a historian, I find it so strange that while we know a lot about the natural history of this beautiful place, the seas, the cave, the reefs itself, we still know so very little about the human history of the reef. In this series, I'm going to be traveling the length and breadth of the Great Barrier Reef to explore how humans, past and present, have shaped this marvelous Australian icon. And how we, as a nation, have been shaped by it. Well, Cook lucked out, didn't it? If he hadn't landed on that other side, yeah. the story may have been different. Yeah, it it's a history found in some of the remotest places on Earth. He would have died on that strip of rock with the rest of the Chinese labourers. And it's one that never fails to surprise and shock. This 14-year-old boy has been abandoned and he's in a place like he's never seen before. It is utterly vast. What we've been imagining is a myth the man who created that myth for the Great Barrier Reef was Ted Banfield. They see among the crowd of Aborigines on the shore a wild-looking, copper-coloured man. At once, they recognise him as a white man. And it's a history we almost never had. We nearly lost it to someone who wanted to mine it for oil and gas and it was only three concerned citizens who mobilised to save it at that point. They are ill-qualified to fight this. They said, in effect, bugger that. These were the men and women, the Australians and the foreigners, the saints and the sinners, who've shaped our ideas and our feelings about the greatest marine environment this planet has ever known. screen when does it oh, probably when the book comes out in November oh it's fantastic thank you very much Ian um. <laughs> and would you please welcome now would you please welcome uh, Professor Judy Patterson thank you Mr. Judy what an act to follow I'm a computer scientist and my specialty is human-computer interaction. And um, I don't know that many people think of computer scientists as very creative. I can't see you so I can't ask you to put your hand up to tell me. But I think that this essence of our discipline is that we build tools. Some of them are very abstract like algorithms and some are a little less abstract like code and some are hardware that you can see and hit. But essentially, we're building tools. And metaphorically, we could think of it as hammers. So um, only just a few decades ago, our tools were pretty primitive. And now, 
We have many, many of them, highly specialised. And each computer scientist just knows about a few of them and hopes to build a couple. Some are very powerful and some, well, some frankly are totally useless. <laughs> but maybe they're beautiful. So one of the things we have to do is find a way to create new tools. And another thing is to make good use of them. And that requires creativity. Of course, we have to start with the basics. You have to be able to hit the nail and remove them and work out what to do when things go wrong. And, um, but then we can move to slightly more creative things. And here's a chance for you to learn all sorts of useful things. If you put a magnet on the end of your hammer, you can easily pick up all those hard-to-find nails. Um, here's a way to spare your fingers rather than holding the nail. And a rubber band on the end will make it easier for you to pull out nails without damaging the surface. And we computer scientists, well, we don't really build hammers, but we build other tools. And part of what we have to learn to do is to find new ways to use them. And then we've got to find the right nails. So you've all heard the one about the man with the hammer thinks all the world looks like a nail, and it's kind of true. But essentially, I think of computer science as what has been described as use-inspired basic research. So on the one hand, we've got problems that we'd like to solve. And then on the other hand, we need to do some fundamental research, build some new tools in order to address them. And then we can invent the future, which has been happening awfully fast. Matter of picking out the right nails and um, building a hammer. And now I want to share some of the stuff we've done on interactive surfaces because you're going to have a chance to play with them. And about eight years ago, we got our first interactive tabletop. And at that point, we were pretty excited. We could see incredible potential. And we knew that there'd be lots of new hardware built every week, every month, and it's happening. What was really missing was good software tools. So we knew we really needed to build a fundamental framework, a tool, that would enable us to build other tools, perhaps to build other tools and so on, um, to eventually build stuff that's useful and that would be useful into the future. Really hard tasks to do well, and that's the hammer I want to tell you about. And there are two sides to it. One is we tried to identify the fundamental tools we needed, and then we also want to think about the things we thought they'd be really useful for and how that should drive what we did. So here we have a picture of our first table, which we thought was really wow. It doesn't look quite so spectacular now. And here is one of my secrets of creativity. On the right is Trent Apted, one of my brilliant PhD students, and he built that framework. It's called Cruiser. Um, we're pretty creative with names too. And then we concluded that we needed to make sure that if you come to one of these tabletops or an interactive wall, you'd be able to use your carry device, say, mobile phone, and fluidly just use the stuff that's there to do the tasks you need to do with other people. And on the right, you see Anthony Collins, another one of my brilliant students, and uh, another secret of creativity. And this is a table he actually built, and the framework works beautifully on all these different tables and on the wall behind them. And afterwards, you can go outside and interact with the wall, which we call the media wall, and I can see the next thing we're going to have to have on that is the launch of the Barrier Reef history. <laughs> um, because I covered that content. It will be fantastic. But please go and look at it after this. 
Okay, so that's the sort of tool direction, but we also were really driven by the motivation to do something we couldn't do before. And this is in the sphere of education. So what you see in front of you is a screen from the work of another one of my brilliant PhD students. There's a theme here. Uh, Roberto Martinez this time, and you'll see him in a bit. And in this case, we knew that collaborative learning has incredible benefits. And if you're using a tabletop and we can grab your digital footprints as you collaborate with other people, we can transform that information into wonderful information for a teacher or for a learner to improve the learning and to improve the teaching. So he built this nice concept mapping interface, which is a standard educational technique. And you can see people on the right using it. We had a problem that um, we, with conventional hardware, you can't tell who's doing what. So there's a picture on the right with a connect at the top. And that's a device that can work out stuff under it. And it produces an image like the one on the bottom right. And we can then analyze that to work out who's doing what. Then we can have learners like these on the left. And they're busily working on, in this case, the national food guidelines and showing whether they understand them. And we can produce a teacher dashboard. And this particular group looks like this. And after all sorts of fancy machine learning of the audio and their interactions at the table, we can get an indication of how collaborative they are and who's doing what. Then the next step was a whole classroom. And here it is. And if you look carefully, all the people are Roberto, my PhD student, because we didn't get the students who really used it to sign the approval forms for the photographs. <laughs> so he had to Photoshop this. And the right is the real teacher who actually ran studies for us last year with her class. She took 14 tutorials in one week using this system. And we worked with her to find out what she would like to know in order to improve her teaching because she can use this sort of system. And here's her class, and here's the dashboard. And on the left, we gave her some controls that she wanted. On the right, uh, some indications of things she wanted to know about what her group members were doing. She could decide where to put her attention and how the class was going. So what's the secret of creativity? Well, you just assemble a wonderful bunch of PhD students. You collaborate, and you learn together. And these are the people who have done all the really hard work. And you can see their work when you go upstairs to the table and out to the wall, and you'll see them all represented. And that's all I have to say. Sorry, Judy. Judy, thank you very much. Martin, please make welcome uh, the lecturer in design computing, Martin Tomic. I moved to Australia four and a half years ago. Before that, I lived in Vienna for 10 years. But I grew up on a farm in the countryside. Growing up on a farm, I learned to become really good at fixing things, solving problems. Today, I would say that's what designers do. Back then, I really didn't think that I would be a designer or didn't think of myself as being a designer or creative. Now I'm a lecturer in Design Lab, where we are a small group of designers, artists, and scientists in the Faculty of Architecture, Design, and Planning. I teach in our master program in Direction Design and Electronic Arts, and I'm the course director of Design Computing. I think the label, 
design computing captures very well what our students learn in their degree. Tim, in his introduction, and also the online description of this event tonight, was referring to the left and the right half of the brain. The right half being associated with the creative and expressive tasks, or to design, and the left half being associated with analytical thinking, what, is, what we associate computing with. Our students, when they enroll in our programs, certainly think of themselves being, as being creative or being creatives. But they definitely have a better understanding of what it means to be creative and the creator it. That being creative is not necessarily only associated with what we know as creative industries. That being creative involves both halves of the brain, being expressive as well as analytical, design and computing. That being creative often comes from thinking with technology, with code. In fact, that's how students learn programming. They learn programming by learning how to use it to design and, or to create art, pieces of art. And in fact, there's a whole community around that that uses code to create beautiful pieces like these. And these two are actually done by one of our current students. And because this is produced through code, there's really no boundary to creativity and how to use these beautiful visualizations creatively and link them, for example, to actual data sources, which is known as creative design. There's a common saying that everyone is a designer because we all choose the clothes that we wear in the morning when we get up. I would have to disagree with that and um, would rather agree with Bill Buxton, the principal researcher at Microsoft, who was saying that if everyone is a designer because we're choosing our clothes, then we also, everyone is a mathematician because we can't our own change. Design is really hard, and that's something that our students learn very quickly. You can become fairly good at computing by following rules, but becoming a great designer, you can only do that through experience. I keep telling my students that if they are to become a designer, if they become a designer, but they also know how to use code as a tool, that gives them the great power of actually changing the experience of people by designing the artifacts that people interact with. But as we all know, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> but maybe that's a different story. I do think that everyone can be creative. I often meet students or the parents who say that they or the kids are really interested in our program design computing, but they're worried that they might not be creative enough. I think that everyone is creative. And I think as our academics, it's our responsibility to enable our students to be creative. I always show my students this example. Anyone recognizes this? This is MySpace, or this was MySpace in 2004. This was the MySpace page of one of my friends back then. You can barely read the text, right? Yes, there's text on there. You can barely read it. Is this great design? No. And I think, I'm pretty sure my friend was aware of that, but it didn't really matter. She was really proud of this because she made this, she created this. And I think that was one of the reasons that MySpace was very successful because, because it allowed people to be creative, to create their own spaces on the web. I'm not creative, but I recently met someone who is. He works as a, at an award-winning design office called the Glue Society 
And what he was saying was that creativity comes from making, not just from talking about it. And I agree with him. And again, making involves both sides of the brain. That may be creating a film, a sculpture, or a website, a mobile app, or designing a new course curriculum. I'm not creative, but I think studies about creativity are really important for our students who study to become designers. Donald Norman, a cognitive scientist, published this great book on emotional design, the role of emotions in design. And in his book, he refers to this kennel task in which participants are challenged with the task of having a box of thumbtacks and a box of matchsticks and the candle. And the task is to fix the candle onto a corkboard wall in a way so that no wax is tripping onto the floor or the table beneath it. What he was saying in his book, what he was referring to, was a study that was done in the 60s, which showed that if people were put under pressure, they were performing not as well at solving that task. Basically what that means, or supposedly what it means, is that if you put people under pressure, that basically shuts down the creative parts of the brain. And I think that is really important for us as designers to know. And if you think of yourself, how many times you might have used the technology, a piece of technology, an interface that was frustrating and you got frustrated while using it and how that might affect it, have affected your creativity, your productivity. I'm not creative, but I think creativity can change the world. Why? Because creativity involves making and collaboration. It's through creativity and collaboration that discoveries and innovations are being made. Creativity is about new, new ways of doing things and new things to do. I'm not creative, but I used to be when I was a child. You might have heard of the paperclip task. It asks a simple question. How many uses do you have for a paperclip? How many uses do you th can you think of for a paperclip? Typically, people come up with 10 to 15 solutions. But if you ask a kid, they come up with over 200 solutions which I think is pretty impressive. Somehow as we grow older, we forget to know how to be creative. We forget to be creative. Creative ways of using design computing is how one of our PhD students, Crichton Nichols, uses these insights in order to create a new platform to using new technologies creatively that will revolutionize online education. Another example for using design and computing creatively is how to develop a $100 laptop in order to write an educational device for all the children in the world. I'm not creative, but I recently collaborated with someone who said I was. I think the truth is that you can't really say that you are creative. You can't say I'm creative. In fact, I heard someone recently comparing this to how you can't say I'm good and bad. It's not credible. It only becomes credible if someone else says it about you. <laughs> and it's the same thing about being creative. Rather than talking about creativity, it's about making things. It's about collaborating. And I believe in that as a researcher, as a designer, and as an academic. I believe that it's our responsibility to enable our students to be creative. Because only by learning how to be creative, they will be able to successfully navigate this ever-changing and becoming more and more complex world. Thank you.
Martin, thank you very much. Um, and now to Wendy, Associate Professor Wendy Davis. Good evening. Um, as Tim said in his introduction, I do lighting. I lead the lighting design program. I do lighting stuff for my research. And it's an interesting field to be in because normal people, as I like to describe them, often associate lighting with this highly creative thing. They go to Vivid Sydney. They see the sorts of installations that my very own students did outside this building, and they can see that. And while lighting does present all sorts of creative possibilities, from my own personal experience, the most creative thing I do is actually with respect to my research. So to give sort of a counterpoint to the perhaps more obvious uh, uses of creativity, I was going to tell a story of, um, of what I'm up to with respect to research. As I'm sure many of you know, whether you're involved in lighting or not, it's a very exciting time. Technology is advancing. I'm sure that many of you are now familiar with light-emitting diodes or LEDs. And quite frankly, LEDs are only the tip of the iceberg. The things that we will be able to do with the lighting technology that already exists is beyond the imagination, really, of most people, most regular people, and even most people in the lighting industry. We have the technological tools to create lighting environments that are customizable, controllable. We can have the light wherever we want it. We can have color properties of lighting, whatever we want. But the research world hasn't caught up because we don't actually know what we want yet. Lighting has traditionally been limited by what was commercially available. You could buy a tube, you could buy a bulb, and it did what it did. But these new technologies can be created in a way that they can do anything. But we haven't yet performed the fundamental research to figure out what should we have them do. I started here at the University of Sydney just about a year and a half ago and was actually really quite thrilled when my dean came up and said, okay, you have to do this, you have to do that. By the way, world-class research, go. And uh, I have to say, he's been super supportive ever since, so it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, now, given the current state of lighting, there's always a temptation in any really applied field. There's always a temptation to say, you should partner with the industry. They'll probably support you in that. And I love the lighting industry. I've got friends in the lighting industry. It's important, especially my educational role, to be quite plugged in. But when it comes to research, academia should really be the leader. Industry often lacks imagination. They have very pressing sort of staying in business type concerns on their mind. And academia should be willing to do the sort of blue sky stuff, the crazy ideas that no one would invest money in, but gosh darn it, just might change the world. So the task that I was faced when I was trying to design this new research lab that we're still working on, and within a couple of months we should have a big launch party, look for your invitations. Um, was how can we do research on something that hasn't been commercialized yet? I do research on lighting applications. So how can we use lighting in architectural spaces? How does that, how does the human perception react to the lighting that's there? And this area of research has been so limited for so long because you can buy something. It's made by a manufacturer and it has a set of properties. 
And it's really hard to change those. And if you change one, you might have changed the other ones. And maybe that's not what you wanted. So I set out to design and build a lab where we could indeed do research on the stuff that hasn't yet been invented. Um, I identified three main aspects, and it's certainly not the only three. It's the three I personally find the most interesting, of what I'm calling future lighting. It doesn't really have a name yet. It's out there. It's in the future. Um, three main characteristics of this future lighting that we will have virtually unlimited freedom with. That the, the technology we have today is, is nothing like it. And the first, um, the first of these three areas I came up with is the, what we call spectral composition of a light source. And even those of you who are non-technical probably remember when you were younger that light travels in waves and depending on the size of those waves, the light is a different color and if we combine a bunch of colors, it makes white light. And so we can have white light from many different combinations. Not all white light is the same by any stretch. But depending on how those wavelengths are combined, the color of our objects will be very different. And I'm sure many of you have experienced this if you have maybe bad lighting, and it's like, oh, my skin looks green, that's ew, I don't want that. Um, and so this is a very important, important property of a light source. It's also really important because it affects the energy efficiency of a light source. So we've got these really important color issues and energy efficiency, and on top of it, future lighting, we'll be able to have any set of wavelengths that we want. So I just have to build a lab where I can make a light source at any given time of any set of wavelengths. It's a little harder than it sounds. Um, but I actually figured out a way. Sorry. Did I break it? Oh, I think the computer was asleep. Okay, sorry. Um, and we see up here that we have a big circle. Uh, this circle, you can imagine, is a sphere. And the inside of this sphere is a very bright white. It reflects almost all of the light that comes on it. And it reflects that light in all sorts of directions. So it's sort of the opposite of a mirror, right? A mirror reflects, darn. <laughs> a mirror reflects right back at you, whereas this will reflect in all directions. And in this particular example, I know what wavelengths I want in my light source. So the green over there is from a laser. Lasers are really cool for this exercise because they emit only one wavelength. Um, I also have a certain blue, and if you see from the tiny picture, that's an LED. It's a blue LED that happens to give me the wavelengths that I want in this pretend slide example. And finally, with the red, just for the sake of illustration, um, there are certain materials that if you hit them with bluish light, they'll actually convert it to be redder. So that's my pretend phosphor, go with it. Um, and if we put all of these things inside a ball that has a really reflective interior, um, the light will reflect, the red light, the blue light, and the green light. And as you can see at the very top, it will mix together. And the light that will come out of this ball, basically, will be white light of exactly the wavelength composition that I want. So this is what we're building. Over on the first floor of the Wilkinson building, we are devising systems. You can think of them almost as color mixing chambers, where an experimenter will be able to source different light generating components and combine them 
so that they can create the light that represents their vision for this future light. Now, the second of the properties that is going to be totally different in future light is what I call the spatial distribution of light. Uh, a regular incandescent bulb emits light what we call omnidirectionally, which is like this. Right? Sort of everywhere, except at the very bottom. Um, a fluorescent tube emits light in a very predictable way. It's, I'm not even going to try with that microphone anymore. Um, but new lighting, future lighting, will be able to emit it however we want. If we want it to be like that, we could do that. But what if we want the light just on the podium? We could do that. And we can come up with all sorts of scenarios at which light, say, just on your desktop would be a real energy-saving solution because we're not wasting pesky light on the walls and other things. Uh, and while there are all these fabulous, innovative ideas about how we could manipulate where the light goes to either save energy and or have a better experience in architectural spaces, we've done no fundamental research to tell us where should we put the light? Where do we want to put the light? So the next stage in the lab is that we have to get this newly formed white light out of these balls. Um, and there's a couple different mechanisms. You see in one space there's just a hole in the bottom. That's one possibility. In another, I have what looks like a weird little snake. That's a, a light guide. There's technology available that will basically make the light travel. Just take my word for that. Um, but then you see my little icons of lenses. So we are going to use old-fashioned optics to now distribute this, the light throughout the laboratory however we want it. If we want to focus it in right there, we might use a positive lens and focus the light right there. If we want to spread it way out, we might use a negative lens, concave lens, and we will be able to do that. So, so far in the design, I've given researchers control over the wavelength composition and where the light goes. And the very last of the, the three properties is control, how we control our lighting. Uh, it's amazing to really sit back and think that the light switch is about 100 years old. It's really low tech. And if you guys were paying any attention to what Judy and Martin were talking about, you might see that we have all sorts of fabulous ways we can interact with things. And our new lighting technologies absolutely digitally controlled. We can change the color by gesturing in a certain way. We could turn the light on by having sensors in the floors that detect when we get up in the morning. But the lighting industry has been a little bit slow on the uptake there. And again, I think that industry, uh, academic research needs to lead and, and not just come up with new ideas, but systematically study them in a, in a scientific way. Um, so that is my sort of story and my case for why scientific research can actually be highly creative. And I would argue that good scientific research must be creative. The obvious questions, by and large, have been answered. The obvious ways of doing things, by and large, have been done. But if we start to really think outside the box, we can do, we can conduct research that changes entire industries, that changes architectural spaces and the way that we all live. Thank you.
Thanks, Wendy. Wendy, could I just throw a quick question just to ask, how far are we away from complete, for, for, for achieving future lights from, from your work? Is that, is, you know, can you put a time scale on that? Yeah, future light in the real wide world. Like, well, I'm going to go out now and buy a future light. Future, in, for the real world, future light, TM, um, is going to be incremental. We can go buy LEDs right now, but of course they're LEDs and they're sort of shaped like a bulb and you sort of screw it in there and you say, well, that's not future light. That's like old-timey light, but with LEDs. Um, but there are, of course lighting products that are starting to push the boundaries. I really don't have a good timeline. I think, you know, depending on the manufacturers you ask, they'll be like, oh, five years. I think to really have this sort of fundamental change where lighting is totally different is going to take quite a while. A lot of it has to do with the integration in buildings. Right now, our building cycle is architect, design, da-da-da, bring in lighting person, tack up, and you're all done. But to really take advantage of what new technologies can do, we would need to consider the lighting at the very initial design stages. We need to integrate it with the space. And, and we can do that. We have the tools to do that, but we don't have the mindset to do that. And that's going to be slow going, I think. All right, we'll come back to that later. And now, please welcome Professor Rick Benitez. I'm really not creative. I mean, how could I be? I'm a teacher. But the fact that I'm even with you tonight is not a result of my creativity. It's an accident. It's a product of sibling rivalry and a hyperactive imagination. Now, really, it, it all started when I was very young. <laughs> I remember my mother telling me the story of the three little pigs. And really, I, you know, I wasn't afraid at all of the big bad wolf, but those three pigs scared the bejesus out of me. <laughs> and my creativity, all of it, is a result of developing imaginative ways to respond to fear. After many years, I finally came to realize that the three little pigs resent my three siblings. <laughs> They'd kill me if they knew I was doing this. <laughs> My sister is now a successful artist. One brother of mine became a professor of cardiology, and the other brother makes ale. Uh, not just any ale, but the ale of Welsh gods of yore. So I've had to compete with them all my life. And it sounds crazy, but it's true. And I reckon that behind most people, there are creativity incentivizers <laughs> like these. So the first thing I want to tell you is it's what you do with your creativity that counts. Because everyone can be creative. And the main thing for me is to share the creative spirit, to get you to use your imagination and put ideas together in new ways, because that's what creativity is all about. So I'm going to share with you three examples of creativity from my teaching, and I hope they get you thinking in ways that you haven't done before. And the first example is dedicated to my brother Mike, the doctor. A few years ago, he made an incursion into my territory, ancient history, when he wrote an article for the New England Journal of Medicine about the death of Alexander the Great. 
Not to be outdone, my hyperactive imagination kicked into gear. Now, the thing is, I don't teach philosophy of medicine, but I do teach the next best thing, the philosophy of law. And that gave me an idea. Here, in this slide, you see a symbol of law's darker twin, punishment. And my creative medical inspiration would do away with it. What if, instead of prisons, we had a punishment pill? A pill that would be cheap to produce. We could, um, you know, test it in Bangladesh. <laughs> I didn't say that. A pill whose effects on the brain. German companies are doing that. That's why I thought, you know, it's, it's atrocious. A pill that would be cheap to produce, whose effects on the brain would just be to block the desire to commit crime. Shit, I forgot to take mine. <laughs> Hold on a minute. That's better. As I said, this pill blocks the desire to commit crime. It has no other effects. Most importantly, it doesn't interfere with, my, interfere with my free will at all. I could commit crime if I wanted to. I just don't want to. Now, in one fell swoop, then, the punishment pill would do away with prisons. And in a civilized society where the only aims of punishment are to deter offenders and to protect society from criminals, surely this pill that I just took would be all you ever wanted. Or is there something else about punishment you still cling to? A little thing called vengeance. My thought experiment about punishment is designed to test your commitment to revenge. Sometimes people find they're more committed to it than they are comfortable with. My second example of creativity is dedicated to my sister, Sylvia. She's the trailblazer, the oldest, and I look up to her, but unfortunately, I can't even draw. So I do the next best thing. I teach the philosophy of art. And instead of painting, I work with words. A great artist with words, Leo Tolstoy, once said that in order for anything to be art, it had to be made public. I wondered about that, and I wanted to test it. And so I went out and found the internal poet. The internal poet is a real person who composes real poetry, but she just doesn't communicate that poetry to anyone else. She does perform her poetry. She has performed it for my class, but she performs it in the interior of her own mind. And we're lucky to have the internal poet here with us tonight. I'd like to introduce you to Susan Liddell. Susan, stand up. Susan, you can turn around and face the audience, Susan. Susan has composed a brand new haiku just for this event. And it's here on this slide in black text. It is. It's really there. Honest to God, it's there. Okay, so Susan, will you now perform your haiku? Thanks, Susan. And let's all give her a hand. Now, the question I want to ask all of you is, is that a work of art? And I'm not asking you about the quality. I'm not asking you about the standing up and the sitting down. Now, that was very elegant. 
I'm asking you about the poem. And if you're thinking, well, it's like the tree falling in the forest with no one around, you're wrong because you're all around. And the poem is right there on that slide. It really exists. Still skeptical? Consider this. This is Bernini's bust of Costanza. It was a work of private obsession. Bernini never intended anyone else to see it, yet it has been judged one of the most excellent examples of portrait sculpture ever. If it had never been seen by anyone else, wouldn't it still have been a work of art? The internal poet and Bernini's Costanza are designed to start you thinking about the need for art to be made public. And that brings me to my third example of creativity dedicated to my brother, Chuck, the beer maker. Here he is with one of his satisfied customers. <laughs> and that's a picture of his farm. It's actually really a picture of his farm near Three Mile Island where he makes the stuff. And it's nuclear. There's no way I could compete with that, but I tried. For 10 years, I produced original philosophy plays and adaptations at Stecky Taverna in Newtown, all in exchange for free ouzo. <laughs> honest, honest. And one particular play sticks in my mind more than all the rest. It was called Zen and Zeno. And these signs on stage, they, those signs were props in the play. And here's the, ex the thought experiment that they go with. Imagine I ask you to walk, starting at that sign that says begin, to the sign that says infin. Simple, right? But think about it. Before you get all the way, you have to get halfway to the end. And before you get from the halfway point to the end, you have to travel half of that distance, and then half of that distance, and so on. So you see, you'll never reach the end. And that's why this sign says in Finn. Now, in order to explain how something so simple as walking from one point to another is actually possible, you need a lot of mathematics and physics and beer. <laughs> but in the meantime, you can be Zen about it. You can learn that although the journey is infinite, you are already always in your destination because you are here now. And that brings me to my conclusion. If what I've said tonight has been effective, it has started to make you think. And if you have started thinking, then I've got you right where I want you. Because you see, I'm really not creative, but you are. And for me, that's what really matters. Thank you. Rick, I think I need a good 10 minutes to think through that, that through again. And... and can you do it with me slowly afterwards? Thank you all very, very much. Before we open um, out to the audience, um, Rick, I, I guess I've, I have a question foremost in my mind because you've just spoken, and that was you, you said quite briefly you, the, the need for art to be made public is what you said. And I wondered if you can then extrapolate from that to actually say our creative, collective creative works. Judy, we're talking about the tabletop. That's for, that, that is for public consumption, is what we're really hovering around here is this link between any creativity and then the desire then to communicate that or express that to a public through, you know, you're obviously making a major television series? Is that, yeah. We hope, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but obviously it's a major public outcome, isn't it? Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's really good, Tim. I, I think... The, the two things are different. The creativity itself is one thing, mm. but the need to communicate it, it's no, it doesn't do any work. It's no, no use unless it's communicated to others. And 
Um, so the, the examples from art were designed to make you wonder, well, is it art mm. as long as it's not communicated? And does it have to be communicated to an art world public? Could it be communicated in private viewings, correspondence, uh, things like that? Um, and there are many different avenues you can go down to explore that. But I think what's really important about our use of creativity is to make it public. And, to, and we, what we really want is a good audience, <laughs> yes. a good house. Indeed. Um, Martin, you, you talked about sort of forcing creativity out of you, if I'm correct in saying, almost like a, by necessity. Um, I wondered if um, there have been situations that you have gone into, and this may be anyone as well, where you have actually felt as though you weren't creative enough to solve what you needed to solve. Uh, all the time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All the time I think. But then uh, that, was my, that was the point I was trying to make. Creativity comes through making and collaborating. And I find that increasingly through my research, uh, but also through the teaching with, with our students, mm. that um, if, you, if you are facing a challenge or you think you're not creating enough, creative enough, that you just need to sit down, get a pen and a paper and start making something, producing something. So it can be either pen and paper or it can, as I was trying to say, it, piece of code, you can start coding, mm. and something comes out of it. Mm. And, and uh, the collaboration in particular, interdisciplinary collaboration becoming more and more important, just bouncing off ideas of each other. And, and it's design and design research is never a linear process. It's, you often get lost and you often, in the beginning, don't really know what you're trying to create. And it emerges through the process and through reflecting on your process. Mm. And I guess the, my only, the other question I was sort of interested to ask is whether you encounter students who actively identify themselves as not being creative and therefore, um, and, and that is a, an issue that you kind of need to wrestle with as, as you know, the course progresses. Uh, I don't think so. I think all of our students think they are creative in one way or another. Um, I did ask a question actually, I gave a guest lecture in one of our first year subjects a couple of weeks back mm. and in preparation of this talk I thought I'll ask them, do you think you are creative? And, mm. and most of them are raising their hand. So I think they're fairly confident that they are creative, which is I think great. I mean that's, that's a good start, that, that, you, that you know, you trust your creative capabilities. Maybe it's time to open it out to the audience. If I could have the lights come up a little bit, that would be fantastic. Other questions that you would like to like to ask? I've got I've got plenty actually, but I just thought that yes. Why? Oh, if you just hang on, that uh, Meredith will bring them. Um, why do we lose our belief in our own creativity as we become adults? Uh, very good question. There's a there's a lot. Sorry, am I? Yeah, no, I know you spoke to it. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just Rock grab up. the microphone. Yeah, um, there's a lot of research on that. So. Um, I think there are a couple of issues, maybe two that come to my mind immediately now. Is, um, one is embarrassment. Um, there's, this, there's this great task, um, uh, there's a TED talk about this topic actually, about creativity and play. I can really highly recommend it by uh, Tim Brown, uh, founder of IDEO, a great um, design company. Um, and uh, the, 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 the game or the task is that everyone in the audience gets a piece of paper and a pen and has to sketch a portrait of the neighbor sitting next to them. And they get like a minute to do that and then everyone the response that, that he got 
doing that during the TED talk was that everyone was feeling quite embarrassed about that. And they were, say, they were apologizing, they were saying sorry to the neighbor, like, sorry, I was so bad at drawing you. <laughs> and, and if you give the task to kids, they're completely like, you know, they're just all over it. And, and, they, and they take the portrait and show it to anyone who wants to see it, and they're really <laughs> proud of it. So I think through being embarrassed, it's maybe also it's, it's related to that candle experiment, the candle task, like how under stress our brain, our creative brain functions don't work as well. So maybe embarrassment also sets us under stress. That's one of the things. And the other thing is um, called, uh, I'm not sure if I pronounced it correctly, divergent thinking. So the idea that um, we, we kind of lose the ability of divergent thinking because we are th I think it's partly through explained through the way how education works and how we are being trained to find one solution to one problem. But the reality is that, um, and again, I see that increasingly through my own work as a researcher and designer, that there's, that we are in a such a, we're living in such a complex world that there is no, there's not one solution to a problem. There are so many possible solutions, and, and therefore uh, it is important to explore all these different avenues, and that's something that I think we need to learn again how to do that and how to trust the process to know that there's not just one solution that is the optimal solution, but there are multiple ones. Thank you. So if your creative abilities decrease under stress, do you have creative ways to put people under conditions in which they have less stress? Um, so as a designer, you can do that. And Donald Norman's book is all about that. So he talks about the different levels um, that you need to consider as a designer. And um, I think there are some examples for digital products out there that um, that demonstrate that that works really well. Like when when you're using, so I'm I'm talking about technology examples now here because that's what we do. We're designing with and through technology, um, and for technology in a way, or for the use of technology. And you can design them so that you feel comfortable and you don't you don't feel under stress while you're using those interfaces. And that's the philosophy behind a lot of the things that, or a lot of the approaches that we teach in our program. Um, it's Another example is you can you can often observe, I observed it a lot when I was um, watching my mom first to learn how to use a computer. She was always worried she might break something. So she was like really, like really afraid to click anything on the computer because, and in, in those days back then, it was really easy to just lose like your Word document that you've been writing on for hours. So, and that's, that's a bad, that's a great example for a bad way of, 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 um, of interface design or, or designing software. Um, by putting the responsibility onto the user and making making the person using the product kind of responsible and feeling embarrassed that that they don't know how to use it or, or feeling under stress that they might make a mistake and maybe lose like you know a lot of hours of work but in the worst case it might it might lead to the to the loss of lives maybe if if you're talking about um, aircrafts controlling aircrafts or um, operating complex machinery so. And there are, there are design principles that you can follow to make sure that um, you are putting people into the, into the right mood and that the experience flows well. And if it flows well, then, then you're feeling as, in, as if you're in a good mood and, and uh, are more creative and more productive in the end. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, sorry, I didn't have time to resolve the puzzle. Um, yeah, I and I, if, boy, everyone kept thinking about the puzzle while I was talking. So, But it's okay, it's video recorded. You can watch my talk later on. If you, um, yes, it has to be lit, yes. 
You want me to explain Zeno's paradox? In, in <laughs> Look, there have been a lot of solutions offered to that, but I guess the simplest way of getting you started on an explanation for it is that um, it's a paradox that uses infinity but infinite divisibility. So the spaces that are being traversed are ever smaller until they are ultimately infinitely small. And given that space may be infinitely divisible, and this, there's a quantum version of this as well, so this is, this is the continuous version. Time is infinitely divisible too, so the bullet has an infinite amount of time to traverse those infinite amounts of spaces so it can still kill you. Does that satisfy? Okay. I just want to interject that we computer scientists tackle this all the time because our computers can't handle things that are infinite. So once you represent this problem on a computer, it gets there. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Um, yes, hi, oh yes, good. I'm going to go back a little bit. Um, one of the things you said really hit home with me was that your students believe that they're creative. And um, I teach physiotherapists, and I wonder, I'm going to so ask them um, when I see them next, because I wonder whether they would really believe the same thing. Um, and so accepting that, uh, you know, I don't know that yet, but I'm going to assume that they're not, they don't necessarily believe that they're creative. How do we go about instilling that in them? How do we try and enhance their creativity? Um, it's, that's a complex question to answer, but I think I, it's mostly incorporated or happening through, through the teaching approach that I take. Um, and that's a combination of theory and as well as the assignments and projects they're working. Um, I admit that in design education that might be maybe easier to do because students are working on design projects and a large, to a large extent the way we're teaching design is, is by enhancing and foster, fostering the creative thinking skills. Uh, but I am also, I also believe that some of these approaches can be translated to other disciplines. And I mean, probably one of the reasons why a lot of my students, even first year, think they are creative is because they, they may want to do something that's related to design. That's why they enroll in design computing. But then they often, they probably even asked them this question, was were associating it more with the creative industries actually. But what I was trying to say is that by the end of the degree, they hopefully understand that creativity is far more than that. And again, that's why I think that these approaches can be translated to other programs as well. I'm not sure if that answers the question. Well, in, in sort of a similar vein, let's move to Judy. Like, not of your research students, I'm guessing they know they're creative, but coursework, computer science major. How many of those students do you think think they're creative? Okay, um, while you were talking, I was thinking about Bloom's taxonomy, which is probably something you all talk about every day. And in the revised form, which of course you're familiar with, um, one of my PhD students who's here actually did work on this, and um, its highest level of knowing something is creativity. And if you're going to be creative, say, in computer science, you're not going to do it unless you know those lower levels. If you don't know the basics and you don't practice them hard, you can't get to the point where you've got enough cognitive um, space to be creative. So um, whether I ask them or not, I guess this is the computer science view 
I can ask them. I, I don't think I would. Um, what I would do instead is give them challenges and make sure that they have all those foundation levels up to the point where they um, are able to become creative. And then I sent them a very challenging exam question. And the fact is, some of them stun me every year with their creative answers, that are, that are correct, that is. <laughs> Can I just ask about that? Because this issue of, uh, which was raised, I think, by Martin, um, this issue of when you're under duress, your creativity diminishes is particularly difficult in universities. I mean, we, we are functionally asked to put people under duress in a sense. That's what an exam is. Um, and I teach a course, a master's course, that which, which asks students uh, that about producing histories. And they're allowed to produce history in any form other than uh, an academic article or book. Um, uh, because the ac academic article and book is how we're formally assessed, um, all of us, academics in the university and everyone else. And so if you ask them to get rid of that and work in other fields, and they work in fields like I've had people produce games, make incredible historical games. I've had people produce fiction, people produce all kinds of wonderful creative forms because they feel free that it's outside the formal academic process. Um, so how do we deal with that dilemma? I mean, you just said when you give them an exam, they produce wonderful things. But isn't it almost axiomatic that when you give them an exam, they're freezing up? I we can't set exams that are long enough. <laughs> Uh, thank you, and that was a great comment. I was just going to add to, as an answer to that question, that I think a lot about a lot, a lot about it is that I try to feel, make my students feel comfortable, um, and I think that relates to making them not feel under stress. And if they if they feel comfortable and, and safe, like I, I I try to give them the feeling that they're in a safe environment, and I um, I try to tell them that it's it's the, the whole university system is based on marking, which I mean it's a different different discussion maybe on that, but I try to tell them that marks are just a way of feedback and um, and it's really about, it's, it's, it's about um, being, yes, being creative and, and being brave to try out things and um, in particular design again is, is about failing and one of the things we teach our students is it's better to fail early and often than failing late, not in terms of marks, but in terms of coming up with design solutions to problems. Again, because there's not one clear solution to, to a design problem. There are always many, many solutions. Can I just say a quick thing about physiotherapy, in that um, I think from another angle, uh, creativity links to listening, as you were saying, about being open to solve a problem. And I wonder if um, creativity, and certainly from coming from an acting point of view, there's a strong link between that sense of openness and empathy which relates to actually understanding the person that is presenting in front of you and what their, um, I guess, where they might be coming from. And there are, perhaps you, it is also about that, if that makes sense. That <clears throat> there's a link between creativity and empathy and actually reading the person opposite you and what they might be presenting to you to actually solve the problem in front of you. That's not, if that makes sense. <laughs> Could I add to, from at least from the point of view of humanities, so where it's not about accreditation so much in our teaching and our degree, it's so important that 
in our race to impart information to students, we don't forget the meaningfulness to students of those kind of accidental discoveries that they make in a tutorial, in a classroom, on a given day. And I, I like to think that, that the accidents in learning, they were, they were actually at the very beginning of philosophy. That's when the first philosopher, Thales, um, was looking up at the stars and he fell into a well. And that's when he discovered that, at least on his view of things, uh, water, liquid nature, was the, was the stuff of all things. The stuff that was at his feet rather than what he was staring at. And, and we often think that the outcomes that are prescribed at the beginning of a course are so important, but the accidents in learning along the way are really important too, I think. Can I just uh, tell a story about um, when I was uh, a tutor first in 1972, which should tell you how old I am, um, at Macquarie University, and it was, a, it was a very stiff and difficult class. My first class, and the class itself seemed to be very stiff and difficult, in part, I think, because there was a, a nun in the class uh, who had absolutely pure white dress, and it, it seemed to make people fearful in some way. Anyway, it was a, a, a terrible class. I mean, we just got nowhere. And it was an evening class. And one night, the lights fused uh, in the entire building. And so we couldn't get out. Uh, so I just continued the class. And it was utterly transformed. Um, people, could, people couldn't see each other. Um, and the nun was went really wild. I mean, she uh, she was talking about Jesuits being male chauvinist pigs, piggy wigs. I think she said in clerical collars. Um, uh, we had this amazing uh, seminar, and in fact, after that, it became better. But it was this business. I think both of you mentioned this business of shame. You know that we are very fearful people, and the dark can help. <laughs> That's true. Yes. Two any other questions? Yeah. I haven't met any of you before, but uh, I'm one of those unfortunate uh, persons that uh, hadn't met you before, and I was encouraged to come tonight. I'm a, a lighting designer and a, and a lighting historian, and I've spent my life actually uh, investigating how we came to where we are today in lighting. And uh, my name's Anthony Papello, and I actually uh, would like to share something with Martin here tonight because um, we're talking about creativity. And I, I look back and how my creativity was kind of fostered. And it was, uh, I happened to have a neighbor who was a very good uh, children's teacher and she uh, was a very, uh, good gardener and as a very very young child I'm talking about uh, one or two she used to encourage me she tells me later in life uh, to just uh, lay on a cloth in the back uh, grass there and actually look at the clouds and make pictures out of clouds and uh, she encouraged me on a daily basis to visualise and she uh, encouraged it on a and, and to a point where I became able to three-dimensionally imagine what people were wanting to say. And uh, I, I never realised how powerful that was because I didn't realise the interaction with the most powerful 
uh, device on the universe, which is our brain, actually is uh, something some people forget. We're interacting with computers, which are very infinitely uh, poorer than our brain, uh, having about 100 trillion uh, cells in our brain that we've counted so far. But the fact is that we seem to have forgotten that we've got that power and we're born with it and we should foster it. So I urge you to do that with all your students. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I, th I was going to go to you, Judy. Yes, I think I know what you're going to say. Well, I, for several years, asked our first-year class what the most exciting thing was about their first-year programming course. And the resoundingly common response was creating my programs that actually worked and that were mine. And the ability to create something that you can be very proud of is certainly, you know, very, very much a part of what computer scientists get and a chance for computers to perhaps take away that embarrassment because you can interact with that machine and fail and fail and fail and nobody need know about it. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, thanks. If you looked at a league table of rankings of patents and of IP and of creative uh, contributions to science and to technology, clearly some, so some societies have, far have made far greater contributions than others. Now, I'm in the, uh, the latter part of middle age in my, in my 50s and I remember the creativity being slapped out of me at uh, primary school. And I, I wonder what thoughts you might have. Perhaps by the time you get to university, the creative juices have been totally squeezed out of you. Uh, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are in connection with that. And as the mining boom diminishes, the fortunes of this country, I would imagine, are going to be very much dependent on our creativity and our ability to make a difference in technology and in science and in medicine. And what recipe the panel has for ensuring that the next generation of our graduates will be creative and can make the contribution of other, other you know, more prolific countries so we do punch above our weight. Hey, Tim, can I say something? Yes, sure. This is one reason why I think uh, philosophy should be taught in schools. Um, it's something that most of our students now find only at university. They come to university, they've never done philosophy before. They haven't thought for themselves before. And there's a lot of resistance to philosophy in the schools. There's resistance to ethics classes in the schools. There's resistance to thinking for yourself among children. But, I mean, that's we got to get the children thinking for themselves. Sorry? Some of the resistance about ethics class, I, um, I don't want to get into too much controversy, but some of it comes from organized religion. So, for example, there was resistance by the Catholic Church and the uh, Anglican Church to ethics classes in the school because they said ethics is just relativism. And so philosophers teaching ethics in schools will just be teaching children to be relativists and not have any moral fiber. And so, um, you know, I think that's just as false as it could possibly be. And I think we need to get, encourage children to start thinking for themselves all the way through school and not to have the creativity knocked out of them while they're still young. I mean, I think very much related 
to what you bring up, but certainly not an answer to it, is that I see many of my students are postgraduates, many of whom are already involved in lighting. Our median age is probably a bit older than some of the other coursework programs. And there's something about expertise taking away creativity. When I start talking about future light, which I just coined that name tonight, so <laughs> hear more of it. Uh, when I talk about future light, there will inevitably be a few students that are like, I don't know, but that's not how we do it. There's this idea that once you gain expertise, you, you know things. And sometimes it's so easy to cling to those that it can really cut off the innovation and the ability to move forth. And it's something I've been mindful of as I've only come into directing my program a year and a half ago, is how do I teach a highly technical subject? I mean, lighting is just as much science as it is art, but in a way that will allow the students to sort of roll with the punches in the future. Because clinging to, that's not how we do it, it's just really not helpful. Um, I'll keep trying on that. I think it was a great point you made about uh, the loss of creative juices and, and I guess we can all recall s dreadful things that were done to us at school. But I actually think we do dreadful things to people at university as well. Um, you know, I, one of the things that I think is most dreadful is the PhD, um, which is our, our union ticket. Um, to becoming a, a you know a, a, a citizen in, and a teacher in, in university, and the problem with the PhD is not is not intrinsic to the fact that you've got to spend three years trying to come up with some original idea. I think that's perfectly fine. The problem is it's a very narrow format, you know, so that it's very difficult, for example, to or has been up until recently at any rate, to incorporate film into your PhD, active film, if that's the way you work, or some other kind of process that is other than, you know, a, a literature report and, and, th and, this, and this, this particular very narrowly prescribed thing that we make everyone jump through. And if only that was more flexible, I think we would have more. You know, in our faculty, we just recently started a studio-based PhD. So we have an alternative. Excellent. Judy. I can't leave that without saying that if we're going to create future technologies that will make this country create lots of small to medium-sized enterprises, which we see as an important way to follow the path that you've mentioned, we need to overcome the situation that kids are choosing to hold to go into lots of areas, but at the moment IT isn't high on the list, not nearly as high as it ought to be from my totally unprejudiced <laughs> point of view. <laughs> um, and uh, it's not easy to change perceptions. People actually think that it's not a creative enterprise. They think it's not a social enterprise, and they're dead wrong. But there's a link. There is an absolute. There's an absolute link. It's about the impulse, isn't it? That actually is about solving a problem creatively. Yeah, loosen up mind. Yes, yeah, indeed. Yes. Yes. Which. Well, I was going to ask Rick when when Rick, your sister, started becoming a, a painter. Yeah. 
did you think that that world wasn't for you, clearly, that you, that, that you couldn't go, go there um, at all? Definitely. I, I, I really, truly cannot draw anything that looks like anything. So, and I, didn't, I don't have any colour sense either. I can't mix colours. So I'm just terrible at that kind of stuff. But, but then did you think, I'm not a creative person? No, not at all. I just thought I found my creativity sort of elsewhere. I just, you know, so, yeah. Sorry, there was a question there. Yes, this is more a comment to Rick. Um, philosophy is being taught throughout all schools. Yeah. I I'm a resident philosopher in a primary school. All I do all day is take philosophy classes That's in, fantastic. A, in a local yeah. school. And I also train teachers. But what, what I know, having joined this community, this is a global community that in fact came out of the professor of philosophy at Columbia in Walter, uh, Matthew Lipman, who found his philosophy students couldn't think for themselves. So he started out at, in New Jersey uh, a movement, Philosophy for Children, which is now growing. It's huge. It's less in New South Wales than we would like it to be, but I'd be training 20, 30 teachers a week in yeah. introducing this into their primary school. Th thanks for letting me know that. That's fantastic. I think that's fantastic. Is that, is that a private or a public school? get the address. <laughs> Do we have any last questions? All right, any other comments between the panel for, for what, what's been said thus far? Cut me off. No, last comment. I was, I was, yeah. <laughs> yes. Is there a slide that gives us the answer? I, no, I didn't prepare one. Oh, right. I can, I yeah. can explain it, but maybe we should just let people think about it. Maybe yeah. a work glass of wine. Yeah, 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 yeah. More creativity. And a piece, and a corkboard. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, unless there's any final questions, would you please uh, thank this fantastic panel? Rick, Wendy, Martin, Judy, and Ian. Thank you so very, very much. Please, I encourage you now to, the lights are on out the front. Uh, we, I really encourage you to talk about this.